0: It's truth and honesty, love, respect, courage, wisdom and humility, those will guide us forward.
1: Protests and blockades over a six billion dollar court approved liquefied natural gas pipeline that will run through indigenous territory in British Columbia. Rail blockades in solidarity of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation have stopped the transportation stalling the economy and forcing a thousand via rail layoffs activists show no signs of leaving and our political leaders are at opposite ends of the track
2: i understand how uh, worrisome this is for so many canadians and difficult the blockades that are happening around the country are illegal
1: that's all just ahead on context <laughs> Okay, a lot to cover today, but first up, here to set the record straight from British Columbia is the Regional Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Chief Terry TG. Chief TG joins us in Prince George. He represents the 204 First Nation communities in B.C. Chief, uh, thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. Now, Does this dispute really come from a court case 23 years ago that was never accepted by Canadian business, uh, politicians? Uh, Is this really at the core of this, that your people feel their legal rights were overlooked?
2: Yes, I think uh, part of the the issue here is uh, outstanding um, land question issues, uh, in particular, uh, with the Wet'suwet'en, the Delgamoca Stairway Court case that uh, was decided upon by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, 23 years ago. And uh, as a result of that case, uh, it did recognize that First Nations have uh, rights. First Nations have to uh, really assert, uh, In in many respects, I think this is the Wet'suwet'en asserting their their rights, title, and interest to to their territory, and and that was never properly resolved with the uh, the federal or provincial government, and uh, and I think the the repercussions are the fact that development within the Wet'suwet'en territory comes under question by the Wet'suwet'en, uh, especially when they're not uh, uh, being addressed properly.
1: And so, uh, the Wet'suwet'en. Um have triggered now, coast to coast, a national rail shutdown, thousand layoffs by Via Rail, uh, countless businesses, millions and millions of dollars uh, stalled up. Did they anticipate that the country could face this kind of a crisis? And is it a bad PR problem for First Nations now?
2: Well, I'm not sure if they anticipated the. The uh, the support that, that they've gained. Uh, you know, this is a, an issue that began well over a year ago in, in January of 2019. Uh, even before that, uh, when the certificate was awarded by the province of BC by the previous uh, Liberal government in 2014, uh, this issue has been uh, ongoing for a number of years. Uh, I, I recall even when. The original proposals, there are many proposals by many different uh, oil and gas companies for pipelines along a uh, similar route, which began in 2015. So 15 years ago that we knew that the government knew and companies knew that there was uh, issues not only with the Wet'suwet'en but with other First Nations issues, so with some of the development. Um, in regards to the support they've gained, I, I'm, I'm not too surprised because if you look at history, um, uh, sometimes we, we have to, to come together as First Nations and support each other. And whether it's uh, similar situations as, such as Wet'suwet'en or, or the Oka crisis back east, uh, there uh, becomes a time that uh, perhaps uh, there's an opportunity to deal with these outstanding land issues. And perhaps we should uh, use this as an opportunity to deal with this long historical denial uh, of first Nations rights time and interests
1: wow so it f- sounds like from your perspective you all saw this train coming that there was going to be an impasse uh, over the lack of respect and uh, on the land claims being honored and this is it and now uh, we're broken
2: well I'm not I'm not sure that we're broken uh, I think um, you know some of the demands aren't aren't too uh Outlandish from the Wet'suwet'en is, is uh, the ask for the RCMP to vacate the area uh, and to begin discussions with the provincial and federal government. And uh, uh, really, what, what would result out of those discussions, I'm sure, is a pathway forward. And uh, I, I don't think that the Wet'suwet'en are, are too unreasonable. It's a long-standing issue. Uh, you know, they, these uh, issues have. Uh, uh, since Confederation, 152 years ago, um, so, you know, these issues. So the
1: way forward then is for the RCMP to leave, and will it take the Prime Minister to sit down with them personally there in their territory?
2: Well, if it's a Prime Minister and Premier Oregon, sure, uh, or their officials to to come to the table in in good faith. I mean, the last 23 years uh, since the Delgamuuc mm-hmm. court case. Uh, I suppose uh, what I at least from what I know is that there, there hasn't been good faith negotiations. So here we are. Uh, we're at an impasse and, and now uh, we've inherited this situation. So let's deal with it and, and come to the table and, and I want uh, really what I would like to see is uh, uh, provincial and federal officials to come to the table and start discussions uh, in, in regards to this issue.
1: Okay, very good. And the RCMP have to leave, correct?
2: That was one of the demands from the uh, the Wetsuit and, and uh, to to vacate the, the area under question. Uh, you're near the Unistoden area, and um, I don't think that's too unreasonable. Um, but at the same time, I, I certainly hope that uh, you know cooler heads prevail, and um, uh, and at some point. Uh, the protests will have to stop. The roadblocks will have to stop. And uh, the court litigation uh, will come to an end with a decision. And, and in the end, even when we do win an uh, our favorable uh, decision, uh, we have to come to the table and negotiate. And, and that's just a reality uh, out, out of all these uh, issues that, that have, uh, uh, have come to a head time and time again.
1: Okay, Regional Chief Terry T.G. of the Assembly of First Nations in BC, thank you for informing us on this very important issue facing all Canadians. Thank you. You're welcome. Here from the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies is Terry LeBlanc, who joins us from Prince Edward Island. Perhaps you can help us understand the significance of the relationship of the hereditary chiefs in this dispute.
3: Uh, Their hereditary, hereditary chieftainships predate um, the Indian Act and predate contact. Uh, they go back uh, for the life of the community as the traditional model of governance for the community. When the Indian Act was introduced in 1876 through 1879 and uh, elected band council governance was imposed by the federal government, Uh, It was intended to displace traditional governance models, such as the hereditary chiefs, and it has done so in some ways quite effectively. But the hereditary chiefs are the traditional model of governance, and in their case, through the potlatch system, uh, that... Uh, had governed the land and the people of the land for thousands of years prior to contact.
1: Terry, we have the hereditary chiefs with one view. Then we have the other 20 chiefs unified that they do want the pipeline to go ahead. What do you make of that?
3: Uh, we need to understand that the elected band council system is an imposed system by the then federal government of Canada through the Indian Act. And while they have governed under the act um, for uh, the years since it was imposed, uh, the hereditary chiefs, in this case, uh, for the Wet'suwet'en and other peoples in the West Coast who use hereditary systems of governance, are the people who have authority over the, the lands themselves.
1: And the word reconciliation is really dominant in this dispute. How should we understand reconciliation?
3: You know, when when one asks someone for forgiveness for having done something uh, uh, damaging to them or having, uh, uh, you know, been disrespectful and so forth, there is an expectation that the behavior that led to that disrespect or to that um, damage will cease, uh, that there will be a changed behavior.
1: There is a chance, of course, that the pipeline will be approved by the hereditary chiefs. But the changed behavior coming, RCMP coming with armed weapons, really got this all off uh, on, on ground that there is no change. Isn't that right?
3: Well, I think that's a significant part of it. I mean, you, you've heard many people, uh, including many politicians, toss around the idea of the rule of law. But what Canadians don't understand is that for 150 years, the rule of law that applied to every other Uh, person living in Canada at the time who was not an indigenous person was very different than the rule of law that we lived under. Uh, The the laws were very discriminatory, things like the inability to go to court, uh, to take a case to court, to hire a lawyer to represent you in court until 1951 it was against the law, to to vote. vote until 1960 and in some cases in provincial elections 1969. Uh, the inability of Indigenous veterans to obtain veterans' benefits until 1995. Uh, you know, we could go through about hundred and some odd, just off the top of my head, uh, laws in Canada that were on the books, and some of which are still on the books today, that are very discriminatory. So when people say the rule of law must obtain here, I think we have to ask the question, whose law, for what purpose, and to what end? And if there's no change in that equation, then we're no longer in a path toward reconciliation. We're in a path towards yet another encounter.
1: What is the Christian view that you are bringing now to this dispute in Canada?
3: Well, it would certainly be uh, a view, not just from a a quote-unquote Christian perspective, but also, I think, from a, a, a deeply held Indigenous spiritual perspective, and that is that that this identifies the fact that that we need to act in right relationship with our Creator, with the One who made us. We need to act in right relationship toward one another in the human community, and we need to be in right relationship and right relatedness to the rest of the creation of which we are a part. And I think this dispute or this this uh, challenging circumstance in which we find ourselves points out the fact that uh, in two of those spheres, in particular, we are not in right relationship. And and in fact the the Canadian government has uh, uh, failed almost continuously to come to the table in good faith to settle the issue of land and land ownership um, uh, that predates uh, the colonial period that is entrenched in the 1982 Constitution Act and that is entrenched in this case in the Dalgamook decision of 1997. So the Canadian government uh, needs to live in right relationship with uh, one another and right relationship to the creation that we're a part of. Um, and I think that's deeply embedded in a, both a biblical tradition as well as a traditional uh, indigenous uh, perspective, Lorna. So so in that sense, I don't think we're in any way um, on, on different wavelengths with, um, with indigenous spiritual leaders, be they Christian or not. Um, I think they would assume and affirm the same kinds of things, that we need to be in these uh, areas and spheres of relationship in a better way.
1: Terry LeBlanc, thank you for helping us understand reconciliation on this challenging issue.
3: Good to be with you again, Lorna.
1: All right, that's Terry LeBlanc of the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. Terry joined us from Prince Edward Island.
4: I never, ever thought that we, as Wet'suwet'en people, would ever be faced with such a crisis as we're facing today. Why do we have to fight to go on our own territory?
1: Well, here to talk reconciliation is Karen Joseph, the CEO of Reconciliation Canada. She joins us from Vancouver. Karen, a beginning point on this was when RCMP arrived with armed weapons at a blockade. Some would just say they're doing their job. When rail lines are closed, police come in with weapons. How was that arrival of RCMP with weapons interpreted by the Wachisapan and First
4: Nations? Well, I, I think it was an interpreted by by many people across Canada that that saw that as an act of aggression, and uh, especially when you're pointing, you know, loaded assault rifles at unarmed uh, women who are holding feathers in, our, in their hands and are and are praying. It's not they're they're clearly not being um, aggressive in any way, shape, or form, and so it need not have utilized aggression to try to mediate that situation.
1: Okay um it it's it's a very difficult thing that this has become such an economic stranglehold for the country what do you say about the miles and miles apart you know white people aboriginal people business people uh eco people are on this issue
4: well uh, you know it's it's kind of how this country started if if you actually look at where railways and and where pipelines are located, uh, they're typically going through uh, reserve lands, and they're doing that for a reason. And and part of that has to do with you know the government can can release those lands at, at no cost to or at limited cost to corporations. So so for instance, if an if a First Nations wants to reclaim land um, that is adjacent to their territories, okay, no. It takes them roughly 30 years in court. If a corporation wants to come in and and take that same territory, you know, it can take them anywhere from five years to ten years.
1: What will it take for a peaceful resolution to be found to this today?
4: Typically, Indigenous people are trying to do two things. They're trying to ensure that their land has some longevity. They're trying to make sure that we recognize that there are limits to growth, that we can't keep consuming all of the resources that we have in this country and expect to have something left for our children. So there's that balance there that everybody needs to be aware of and that's much closer i think to indigenous people than than most. And the other piece of it is how do we create some level of shared prosperity? So if a corporation is coming in and making 20 billion or 40 billion, I can guarantee you that the indigenous territories that they're going through that they need to access are are not reaping anywhere near those kinds of benefits
1: and it has caught the nation's attention there has got to be a way forward on this impasse so karen joseph ceo of reconciliation canada thank you for helping us
4: thank you so much lauren i appreciate the opportunity
1: Canadian farmers are feeling the effects of the rail blockades. Mary Robinson is the president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. She joins us now from Charlottetown. Mary, what is the impact on farming families at this at this blockade?
0: Well, this blockade is just another feather on the back here, really a straw on the camel's back, I guess is the expression. Uh, we've had a, an incredibly difficult year and... Uh, This blockage is just exacerbating an already bad situation. We're seeing, you know, producers in Western Canada unable to get grain to port. We know we're seeing a pileup of vessels in the Vancouver port. Uh, We're seeing pork producers, uh, you know, 70% of Canada's pork production is exported and most of that goes by rail. So we're seeing that interrupted. We know ethanol plants have stopped receiving corn because they can't get their finished product to market. So just in general, we're seeing a disruption in the flow of business, which is meaning that farmers are incurring additional costs and also risking um, uh, not getting the revenue that they banked on. Okay. Um, You've
1: seen the polar opposites that there are in this country on how this dispute should be handled. You represent people who, who make their living off the land, understand land uh, care and stewardship. How would farmers like to see this resolved?
0: You're right. CFA represents about 200,000 farm families across the country. And we do know that Canadian agriculture is definitely a champion in environmental stewardship, economic development and food security. We know that uh, we are farmers and that's what we do best uh, and we know that we have a federal government that has a situation on its hands, it's very delicate in nature and complicated, and we look to them to solve this problem rapidly. Uh, how they do it is really, that—that that is their kettle of fish, that's their area of expertise, and uh, really what's important to Canadian farmers is just quick resolution.
1: And yet there is this understanding of the eco tensions that are involved here. Um, how do farmers feel though, when they see the city folk joining in an issue that is um, you know so essential to their own bread and butter?
0: well i'm I'm very cautious when making kind of broad statements about city and rural because I think uh, we've got people of uh, all shapes, sizes, colors, and beliefs in every camp. Uh, and I think, uh, to weigh into the discussion um, about the, the blockade and, and the statements that are being made and who has the right to make those statements, again, that's not really our business. As farmers, we've kind of just been grabbed from a crowd and held hostage once again uh, by something that we really have no direct connection to. It's much like in the situation with China and our being locked out of export markets there. We knew it was an incredibly complex situation, but Canadian farmers were hurting. And our message to government at that point was, even though you cannot uh, effectively uh, affect change in China and how they're going to treat us, uh, you can take care of a domestic issue, which was uh, supporting farmers. So we're looking to government to stand up, to show some real leadership and also some investment in agriculture, which is well overdue. We've seen successive governments fail to make Meaningful investments in agriculture, and it's a real shame because as Canadians We should be so proud of our natural resource. We're the envy of the world We have amazing land and we have an amazing chain of people in the entire value chain of agriculture That know how to manage that resource and bring real value and pride to Canadians
1: Okay, so if the government cannot resolve this quickly what will happen to our farming economy to farm families if these blockades continue?
0: Well, we do know that some of the more immediate pressing issues are propane in eastern Canada and the ability to heat, burn, heat poultry barns. So we're going to be into an animal welfare issue quite soon. Uh, I understand that uh, the province of Quebec estimates they have about 10 days of propane left before we're in a situation where... I don't know if we're down to rations or down to no propane. So because we've never been this far along uh, in a crisis like this, it's very difficult to say what's going to happen and how it's going to play out. But it's not going to be good. And we know the markets that we've secured internationally, whether that's for pork or it's for grains or what have you, when you're unable to fill your markets, you risk losing those markets. So long term, the damage is going to be significant and a speedy resolution at this point is really what we need.
1: Okay, Mary Robinson from the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, thank you for helping us understand.
0: Thank you, Lorna. I appreciate your interest in Canadian agriculture.
1: Joining us now is First Peoples Voices host, Crystal Lavallee, and Crystal, thank you. You have brought to YES TV, to 100 Huntley Street, and to Context, when we've needed it, an understanding of what's going on with First People's voices. Are you shocked to see this country stalled on billions of dollars of business over this land claim issue?
5: Mm, I'm not shocked, Lorna. I'm compassionate because you look at um, how do you grab the attention of an audience? You, you've got to make it. Got to make a loud noise. And that's what we're seeing with the blockades is that indigenous people obviously aren't feeling heard um, and they obviously don't have a spot at the table because if they did, a lot of this um, uproar that you see wouldn't happen. But um, it's much like right before Christmas last year, we saw Makwa Sagagan First Nation in Saskatchewan, they put out a press release regarding the suicide crisis. Well, the suicide crisis has been happening for a long time, but until they actually put it on the forefront and, you know, pushed it in the news, then people started responding, the churches responded, communities responding. What
1: needs to happen on the land claims?
5: So I think what people need to understand is that uh, the... Assembly of First Nation Chief Perry Bellegarde, he said, uh, We're going to change our wording. It's not land claims, it's ran- land restoration. And, you know, they had said that there's an awakening going on among Indigenous people as well as white people to understand that, you know, when the agreements and the treaties were made, it was two percent of the land is really what makes up First Nation communities or reserves, um, the 634. But there's 98 percent of the land that's being used by provincial, federal, municipal governments to steward and and create wealth and generate economics. And so, I think that, um, you know, we need to work together to under have that heart of understanding for one, because I think a lot of white people uh, kind of default to Um, well, it's just those indigenous people, that's just what they do, it's just what's happening, without actually hearing what they want. They want a spot at the table, they want their voices to be heard, they want mutual um, benefits from the land and stewarding the land.
1: And uh, you're speaking as a Métis, I don't know if everyone realizes that, but you have gone to collect stories on these reserves for us. Every week we roll a different First Peoples Voices story here and have a great collection online on them. But the word reconciliation now is what we're saying back and forth. And it's like, I'll I'll just say, I don't know how you do that in politics is reconciliation. What would it look like?
5: Reconciliation is hard. They said um, people need to understand, non-Indigenous people need to understand that Indigenous people have a fundamental right to steward the land, to self-govern, to self-determine. They're allowed to say no, they're allowed to say yes. Um, and as long as the benefits are mutual, um, then, then people can work together. So reconciliation is just having that heart. Number one, just to understand your First Nation brothers and sisters, your indigenous neighbors, ask questions, uh, don't be afraid to dialogue with them. Um, number two, reconciliation looks like I'm gonna drop my own biases towards another people group so that I can hear the history. Because a lot of people don't understand that one of my friend's grandparents weren't allowed off the reserve without a pass, like a grandparent.
1: Okay, I do want to refer to um, uh, the chiefs who have also said, it's time to stop this blockade. It's, this is causing too much inconvenience. Uh, there isn't there isn't a unanimous agreement on this and it's making it very
5: difficult. It's the mutual benefit part that that I've come to understand, listening to both sides, listening to friends on the ground on both sides. Many people want the pipeline in in, in those indigenous communities because it creates jobs, because it creates economic boom in their community. But when there is um, you know, when when it feels like, that's being taken for granted or when it says yeah you're at the table but you don't actually have a spot at the table or a voice at the table that's where it comes down to so i think this is something that would have to be you know it's it's something that we the bystanders or the ones who are watching everything take place it's maybe asking yourself the question, what do I need to understand? What research can I do? Who can I call? What band council? Like yesterday, I I called one of the councils because I said, help me to understand this crisis. Help me to understand what we're looking for. How can I help? How can Canadians help? So that we can take platforms like this and communicate it to the rest of Canada.
1: And as Chief Bellegarde said, of those seven pillars of the wisdom teachings, that we must have this kind of respect, this love, this understanding crystal. It's part of my Christian mandate to figure it out too. Thank you for being uh, our representative on First Peoples Voices and thank you for helping us understand. No problem. There is an awakening going on in Canada where people are understanding we treated our founding people in sinful ways. But when it hits our economy, like in a rail blockade, people get angry. And these emotions are part of the aftermath of reconciliation not being walked out well and as a member of christianity i have an added responsibility to take the time to understand the offended history the legal realities and then educate towards peacemaking so let's close with the grandfather's teachings which are also found in the teachings of jesus and they are to walk in truth honesty love respect courage wisdom and humility as Chief Bell guard stated let's put those at the front of our rail blockades it's a profound implication of being Canadian for all of us thanks for watching and uh, more on this at our website thanks for joining